Good morning. Happy Monday. This is John Hulsman, and welcome to Monday's Foreign Policy blog, where we try to make sense of the weekend and beyond. And today we're going to look at what will U.S. US foreign policy look like after the Democrats' midterm wipeout. Well, to make, to make this argument, we have to assume that the Democrats are wiped out in the midterms. And I wrote about this last week in Arab News, and there was some interesting back and forth on the LinkedIn site. Um, as to how sure we can be of this. And, and my point is that we can bake this into the cake now. Certainly things can change between now and then. This is what's always said by people who don't make analytical decisions um, and become an octopus on the one hand, on the other hand, on the other hand. But frankly, uh, the point I'm making is exactly the opposite, which is that even if things do change, they won't change quick enough to affect the basic dynamics of the race. So in the theory of our case, the first step we have to prove is that the Democrats are going to be wiped out in the midterms. And by that, I'll define it specifically, that one or both of the houses of Congress will shift to the Republicans. The most likely shift is in the House of Representatives, uh, where I and the firm predict. And remember, we call the election right. The other thing to remember, remind those of, on, on the site are, look, you judge someone by their record. Again, the foreign policy call record is everything. I don't care what party you're in. I don't care what your ideology is. I care what's your foreign policy call record. In other words, I care about merit, and that makes me a revolutionary in our very kind of Kardashian-led age. By that, I mean, if you're a political risk analyst and are well-known and one of my serious competitors, and you're wrong all the time, you're wrong about Brexit, you're wrong about Trump, you're wrong about Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Miracle being a wonderful statesperson, all those things, then I don't really care what you have to say because you don't know what you're doing. On the other hand, if you're right about most of those things, then regardless of your politics, I'm very interested in reading you. And that's how we ought to look at this. Again, the facts, the facts, the facts, empirical, um, kind of an empiricism is how we look at it. Merit, are you good at this? And if you look at our record from the last election, we got it exactly perfectly. We called a close but clean win for the presidency for Biden, which is what happened, and narrow victory in the House, and we called the 50-50 Senate tie down to the senators. So rest assured, we actually know what we're doing here. And if we look at it now, our prediction is that the Republicans retake the House. Uh, we're on the heavy end of that by at least 30 seats, if not more. Why do we think that? Well, historically, if you look at the record, it's incredibly rare when the party in power after the new presidential election in the first midterm of the new presidency holds on to power and doesn't lose an awful lot of seats in both the House and the Senate. I mean, there are exceptions. Um, that you can point to, but by and large, in, in the, particularly in the first term after a victory, you see the wipeout. And, and this is held true throughout the 20th century, and there's no reason to think it won't now. Secondly, this, the most important in the last generation indicator of midterm elections is as they've become more nationalized and less localized, Tip O'Neill is exactly wrong, the famous Speaker of the House, Democrat in the days of Reagan, when he said all politics is local. That did used to be true, but it hasn't been since the 1980s when the biggest indicator, the single most important indicator of what's going to happen is simply the president's approval rating. If the approval rating is in the upper 40s and over 50, it's going to be at least a mitigated experience for the party in power. And if it's in the low, the mid to low 40s or lower 
it's going to be a nightmare. And Joe Biden presently in real clear politics, average of polls is precisely at 40 percent. And again, I've said this before. If you're watching Washington, you watch the poll numbers like most people watch baseball scores. And by that, I mean that if the president's approval rating is above 60, he can pretty much tell Congress what to do. Think FDR in the 1930s, Reagan after 1984. When the president's riding high, uh, the power is with him. When the president is at, say, 40 percent, uh, he's trying to squelch rumors that he's dead and that he's relevant. Think Bill Clinton um, after the midterm wipeout in 94 when he had to ex explain that he was relevant. If you have to explain you're relevant in Washington, you're probably not very relevant. And the reality is that Joe Biden is at 40. He's in the squelch rumors, you're dead, end of the, end of the spectrum. And so this 40% means that, yeah, there's going to be some variation. But by and large, the midterms have become nationalized elections over the last um, generation. And this will mean easily that the Democrats are in for a very bad time. And then the third reason is that the most important issue by far is inflation. Um, in all the most recent polls in June and July, the morning consult poll you look at, the newsmakers poll that you look at, you see inflation being named by Americans at about 70, 72% is the most important issue facing them. The next most important issue is COVID languishing at about 10%. And so overwhelmingly inflation is the most important issue, according to the American people. Inflation is now over 9%. The beast has loosed the cage. And two generations of the heroic work of Paul Volcker, the fantastic chairman of the Fed in the 1980s, and Ronald Reagan, who slayed the beast, or at least sent him, uh, shackled him to a cave while the beast has escaped. Frankenstein's monster is heading toward the village. Um, the Fed and the Bank of England and the ECB have been utterly asleep at the switch. And worse, the profligate spending of Biden. And again, the climate change bill that he's just managed to pass, he thinks is something to crow about when it's merely going to add to inflation. The last thing we need when we have too much fiscal profligacy is more fiscal profligacy. The idea that this is somehow going to lower inflation is the Democrats whistling by the graveyard. And indeed, in polling, most Americans, if they have to pick a group to blame, I think wrongly, primarily blame Biden. I would first blame the Fed. Uh, and then I put Biden and Janet Yellen, our secretary of the Treasury, probably next. But a plurality of Americans, around 42 percent, say Biden is the single most important factor in inflation escaping and making their lives absolutely miserable. And let's remember, inflation is a tax on everyone. Unemployment is a tragedy if it happens to you, but it's always a subset of the population, whereas inflation is a tax on everybody, particularly the working poor. And uh, this is what makes it so awful. And there's no sign that it's going down. And Biden has gone from saying, don't worry about inflation, it's transitory, to it's all Putin's fault, between Putin and energy and bottlenecks, all of which are true but are not the main problem, uh, that they're to blame. And then greedy oil companies are to blame, as though they shouldn't make money when they lose money doing R&D before. They shouldn't make money when times are good. And all of this doesn't pass the laugh test, and the American people aren't buying it, and 42% are certainly over 40, a plurality, blame him. So, to sum up, why are the Democrats going to be wiped out? Because historically, this is what happens in the last 100 years when a new president comes to power. The country has buyer's remorse and slams on the brakes to try to limit what he can do. The American system has a separation of powers, and it is there to stop 
overweening executive action. That's how it was set up. And that's what it tends to do two years in. And there's no reason for that not to hold this time. The second reason is that the if there is one factor you have to look at in determining what's going to happen, it's the president's approval rating over the last generation. And here Biden is in the basement at 40 percent, very low, very weak. And in fact, many Democrats are calling on him to step aside and not run again for a second term where he would be, instead of being worryingly old, decrepit. And most Democrats are very concerned about this. And then third, the number one issue overwhelmingly confronting the country is inflation. And here the Democrats own it in the Trump administration. Inflation was under 2%. Now it's over 9%. The Democrats have no one to blame but themselves for the most important issue on the, of the day and the one that's worrying the American people. For all these reasons, it's clear that the Democrats are going to be wiped out. And they have a narrow majority of five or six in the House, and they're going to be wiped out and the Republicans will retake the House. The Senate is far more problematic, um, partly just because of the Senate seats that come up. Remember that constitutionally, one-third of Senate seats come up every time. It's a six-year term. And the seats that happen to come up this time really favor the Democrats. They're defending seats that Biden tended to win, and this gives them a, a huge advantage. Actually, in the next midterm, um, in the presidential year of 2024, the Republicans have that advantage and will have home court advantage that will probably statistically be unfair. But that has to be baked in. And so the Senate is much more on a knife's edge. We presently have the Senate, though we're not willing to make a call on the Senate yet. We have on the House, but the Senate's too close to call. We have it exactly at 50-50. Again, maybe 51-49 for the Republicans, but far too close to call yet. We won't make that call until the autumn. Um, and so the Senate is very much up for grabs. The House is a done deal, though, for the Republicans. Well, why does any of this matter for foreign policy? And the answer is on the surface far less than meets the eye. When you read the Constitution, it is very clear that on domestic matters, the president is just one voice of many. There are the Senate Banking Committee and the House Commerce Committee, and there's the Federal Reserve, as well as the presidency. He's just one voice among many making economic policy. And again, I think the Fed probably is more important than the president doing this with the president second and the, and the Congress breathing down his neck. But there are a multiplicity of voices uh, making domestic policy. When you read the Constitution, it's clear, on the other hand, that in foreign policy, the president is first among equals, that the president is the one running with the football, that there's very little the other branches of government can do to really stop foreign policy if they don't like it. It's hard to think of how the Supreme Court really plays much of a role in making foreign policy and are utterly peripheral generally to this being done. The Congress do as some say. I mean, the Congress can, as they did over Vietnam, threaten to defund the whole thing, and they can threaten to defund various parts of the budget. They can have a sense of Congress, which is symbolic as to how they feel about an issue. Uh, but neither of these really do affect foreign policy in a basic way. The president is 80, 85 percent in control on foreign policy, and that number might even be a little bit low. It might be as high as 90 percent. Well, if that's true, why am I bothering you on Monday with a podcast about U.S. foreign policy and what it will look like, assuming that it will be different after the Democrats' midterm wipeout? I think I've proven here definitively, analytically, the Democrats will be wiped out. But if I'm right about the Constitution, who cares? Because the president can still do precisely what they want. Well, there are two basic arguments as to why I've bothered you on a Monday morning with what I think is a really interesting 
podcast in terms of topic. Um, the first thing is that the idea that in Washington you could do more than one thing at a time, uh, which would seem to be sensible, just isn't the way, case about Washington as I actually found it being lived in. And I lived there for the better part of 10 years at a very high level in the foreign policy community. I worked for think tanks on the left, the right, and the center in Washington, which you can't do anymore, more is the pity. I'm a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. That means I'm a made man in mafia terms, uh, the most prestigious foreign policy institution in the world. And I'm a life member, which through a series of very lucky accidents, but I've been a life member since my early 30s, as young as you could be, and have watched things up close as policies have been made. I also worked for the center left, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, where I was a fellow. And then I worked on the right for the Heritage Foundation, where I was senior fellow in foreign policy, the senior fellow at the largest think tank in the world. And so I know the scene and I know all the players, which again, you can't do anymore and more is the pity. Our foreign policy works best when it can be bipartisan, or at least we all talk to each other. And although everyone still talks to me, they don't seem to talk to each other nearly so much anymore as there's been polarization of both parties. And I think that's very bad for our foreign policy. Again, the best foreign policy we've ever had is in the modern era, at least, is through containment doctrine, where the Republicans and Democrats, the Eisenhower Republicans and the Truman Democrats agreed on a Cold War strategy of containment, and this held all the way through to the glorious Ronald Reagan. And we just don't have that kind of staying power at the moment. Um, saying that I know the scene, I can guarantee to you that the, that the idea, as my grandmother would put it, that people can walk and chew gum at the same time simply isn't true. The foreign policy community in Washington in general tend to focus on one or two issues across the board, and that's about it at a time. Yes, at the lower level, things trundle on, but if they don't reach the attention of the highest level of the decision makers, not much gets done and the bureaucracy drifts along, but there's no real pointed policies. And given that, foreign policy is the ugly stepsister um, in Cinderella terms of what goes on. I remember being amazed at this, that, that if you go to the White House, and I did many times for work, overwhelmingly the number one issue in the White House, in a, congr a congressman's office where they have to raise an obscene amount of money every week to be competitive, or in a Senate office, at least for three of the six years, is re-election. Re-election, re-election, re-election is the number one thing they are concerned with. Secondly, domestic policy, because it affects their constituents, as it should be. And then only third does the ugly stepsister come in, foreign policy. It is by far hardest to get attention on foreign policy, hardest to focus on, because the day-to-day -day is about survival, which is the next election, and domestic politics, because that's where your constituents are. And that's exactly how it ought to be. But to make a big change, like restructuring U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific, as I've talked about, the name of the game is the Indo-Pacific, where all the risk and all the reward are to get their attention on foreign policy is an uphill battle at best. And given the political situation at present, will be harder and harder. The Democrats, after they're wiped out, will be obsessed with surviving the second coming of Donald Trump. What do they do with Biden? Do they move left? Do they move to the center? Now that they've been wiped out, they really have to focus on foreign policy because they can't get anything done in domestic policy, given that the Congress, at least the lower house, is now controlled by the Republicans. And so what do they do? And they will spend at least a year, if not two, navel-gazing. And then we're into the presidential cycle. And so very little will get done 
And that's a reason it matters, that foreign policy will be on autopilot more than it ought to be unless there is a crisis when they will be reactive, not having put down a proactive foreign policy, having been wiped out in the midterms. And this is the huge negative. They will be introspective and navel-gazing. Goodness knows the Democrats are and the progressives are on a good day. This will not be a good day. And so they will, rather than try to craft a new structural policy for the Indo-Pacific or for Europe, or for containing China, or for managing Russia in Iran. They will let events dictate things rather than being proactive. I think that's a huge outcome of the midterm wipeout. And then the second outcome, the one area where Congress does have some skin in the game, and I think will push, is over investigations. The party in power can investigate the executive branch. This is one of their main constitutional duties, to keep the executive branch and overweening executive power honest. And that's what our founders wanted them to do. And in this case, with things so polarized, and think if the Senate happens to go Republican, for instance, by a seat or two, 51-49 or so, suddenly Rand Paul and his nemesis, Dr. Fauci, are going to meet on a daily basis, as Rand Paul will rightly, in my view, and my sympathies are certainly with Senator Paul, will subpoena Fauci over and over again and ask him things like, why did the United States fund gain-of-function research in China? which it now appears undoubted that we did. That's like helping another country get nuclear weapons. What were you thinking, sir? Will be a question that I think Rand Paul puts to Dr. Fauci. COVID will be thoroughly investigated, why the United States was helping the Chinese with this very dangerous work, and then we'll begin to look at the origins of the COVID virus. That will be looked at in great detail in a way that the Democrats have skated over it as best they can because they see themselves as responsible. Certainly Fauci has identified himself strongly with Biden rather than Trump. And so Fauci will be investigated and the Americans will look in detail into the origins of COVID as they ought to do and they should have done long ago. And the outcome will not be a pretty sight. It will involve Chinese cover-ups, as we've said over and over again. And the fact that if you're covering things up, a very good Jack McCoy law and order case can be made that the Chinese did not, in some weird Frankenstein way, propagate the virus. But once the virus was loose, they committed depraved indifference, manslaughter. They said, if we're going to get sick, the whole world's going to get sick. They locked down Wuhan while they left the international flights open. And we certainly know that from the flight manifests. And so they propagated the spread of the virus and Congress will investigate this over and over and over again. They'll investigate the disaster in Afghanistan. Most Republicans were for leaving Afghanistan, although that's more divided than the Democratic Party, again, rightly so. But the manner in which it was done, the Chief of Staff Mark Milley at all, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, these guys should have resigned. It was a catastrophe. It was horribly managed. For instance, they closed Bagram Air, Air Base, where they could have had a orderly withdrawal, instead used Kabul International Airport, where there was a catastrophe. They will go into detail about these recent failures that have been just brushed aside, and the Republicans will go into detail. So the Biden people will feel more and more isolated and more and more under siege. What will this mean practically? It will mean the United States, if anything, takes an even more hawkish turn with China. It means that in, in terms of getting more involved uh, in foreign adventurism, that will become less and less likely. It's the death of the Wilsonian neocon dream. Thank goodness, because of these investigations. So a more hawkish and a less interventionist policy. In other words, 
and I'm going to be talking an awful lot more about this coming up, you will see the Democrats forced into a less adventurous Wilsonian policy as the Jacksonian forces in the Republican Party, Republican populism, and Republican Jeffersonianism begin to get together and form an alliance, a realist alliance that will keep the Democrats honest at long last. And this is the very good news about the Democrats' coming foreign policy wipeout. Hope you enjoyed this. Um, I've been sitting here with one of my five cats, Mandela. He seems very interested in what we're doing. And so on behalf of both of us, I wish you a very happy Monday and on to the next. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. We're overwhelmed at, at our response this year. And we now see that this is a teachable moment for political risk, and we promise to keep them coming. And for those of you who have subscribed, August is a great time for you to give. We're asking only $70 a year, $7 a month. For $70 a year, half the price of a beloved espresso I'm about to down, we can give you the full lineup. T today is the foreign policy blog. Tuesday is our culture section. Wednesday, our flagship around the world in 20 minutes, political risk section. JL Writer writes on the society on Thursday and my friend Publius on the economics on Friday. To keep our little local newspaper to the world going, all we're asking for is that $70 a year, so please do give. Have a wonderful week and stay cool wherever you are. It is incredibly hot in Milan.